Welcome to Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. This episode, Strategic Roadmaps, Defining Your Organization's Success, we are joined by Julia Bradley, Senior Manager Corporate Facilities, Workplace Strategy, and Space Planning at Altria, and Don Honert, Workplace Client Leader at BHDP. Julia and Don discuss Altria's roadmap used in their renovation of a historic building and an addition for their headquarters. I'm your host, Brian Trainer, a Workplace Strategist for BHDP, and I'll let our guests introduce themselves further. So we're joined today, once again, Mr. Don Honert. Please introduce yourself. Tell people who you are and what you do. I am Don Honert. I am an owner and client leader at BHDP and had the honor of working with Altria over the past five or six years, helping set strategy and build a beautiful project. That's right, because we have a whole building to talk about. And then our next guest, Julia, would you please introduce yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Ah, well, hi, everybody. I'm Julia Bradley. I am Senior Manager of Workplace Strategy and Space Planning, amongst a few other things, at Altria. And essentially, my team deals with the inside of our buildings, the furniture, the amenities, stuff on the walls, and basically putting the right teams in the right places to do their work. So just for the people listening, to clarify right away, it's clear from your accent you're from Tennessee. So which part... Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I, I spent many good years in East Tennessee. Yeah. The accent's just fake. So That's true. It's all for show. I'm excited today because on that journey with Don, I was there from the very first day. And while he was able to see the project through to the end, I was on the strategy portion. So it's fun to see what happened at the beginning and where we are today. So we are talking about your project, which wound up becoming a building, what was the impetus for this project? Like, what were the origins and why? It had rather normal beginnings in that there was a lease ending in the near future. And then things started to get interesting when the building owner said, hey, we might want to sell. And that, I think, got wheels turning and led to, well, wouldn't it be great to not be in two buildings connected by a tunnel, wouldn't it be nice to sort of have a cohesive building where people are located near the right other groups and a chance to reset and sort of build fresh for today's business goals and the way the business is working today as opposed to, you know, quite a few years ago. And the building you were in had a bit of a pedigree, I believe, too, right? There was a historical distinction to where you were. Don, did you want to talk about that? Yeah, the first time we showed up to the building was just like, oh my goodness, this is a international style building. We discovered it was designed by SOM and Gordon Bunshaft back in the 50s in the heyday. So we were super geeked out over the whole thing. And at the time when we were talking to Paltria about what is the right thing to do, do we stay in this building or do we just abandon it and do we go? It was like, well, of course you would stay because it's just cool, right? But then the strategy started to kind of take us a different direction. Yeah, and that was an important part of this was the strategy. I think this was the first time for Altria you were able to actually dig in and do like a deliberate strategic approach. Was there a reason why you wanted to look at this more carefully 
I think there had been a history of it had either been a really, really long time since you could sort of build a suit, if you will. And there'd been a history of we've got to get people in a building really, really, really fast. We don't have time to have the luxury of involving employees and getting an awful lot of input and developing a solution that was very employee centric. So we wanted to take the time and do it that way and gather all of that input before the nerdy facilities team just made a building happen. Right. But not just employee input, but leadership was heavily engaged from the beginning. Don, do you remember some of the touch points we had through that strategic engagement? We had many meetings. I remember when we asked for the CEO's involvement at the time, and he said, well, I can't be involved, but here are five other leaders that are to be involved. That engagement was incredible. Their commitment to show up and, and contribute ideas that really, I think, showed future thinking into the organization beyond what was at the time the CEO who retired. And I'm really excited to, to see it, the strategy still intact and still play. Yeah, your process, and you haven't prompted me to toot your horn or anything, but I must say your, your process in master planning and helping us work out how we got information and then the right kind of information to then translate into building decisions was really good. Mr. Trainer and his brilliance and getting information out of people, it was really fabulous to watch and be part of and then sort of be a fly on the wall. But you do have some kind of secret sauce or something to get people to open up and trust the process and give you feedback because I'm sure we're going to talk about the success criteria, but those were derived directly from employee or leader words. And you somehow took those and they made them into this secret recipe. My secret sauce is that I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, you know, I go into the room having no idea what the answer is. I think that's actually helpful sometimes because you just go in with curiosity jacked all the way up going, what are we doing? Yep. But with a really good framework and reliable tools. That's right. Yep, yep. I wanted to talk, though, what is the project? Because we should be specific about that. So I know you had the Gordon Bunshaft building. There was a building across the street that you went through through a tunnel. Did you have the metrics on what actually ultimately happened? Because I remember at one point in the strategy, we had even had a recommendation that said, maybe you should build a building somewhere else or look for one that meets this criteria. And the decision was made, nope, we're going to stay here. And then what happened next? Well, I think that we realized after some assessment, we looked at greenfield opportunities, we looked at some brownfield opportunities for a variety of reasons. They didn't feel like us. It's very hard to replicate a sort of class A office building in a historic park, which is essentially what we have with our campus. The grounds here are spectacular and the location is incredibly convenient and good for everybody. That was a change I think that we were like, Let's stay where we are because we have plenty to work with. And so the decision was made to extensively renovate the interior of the 1958 building. And then we would do a very sensitive addition on the back, which is joined by kind of a, a glass box so that you can fully represent the entire envelope of the historic structure and see how it's really not impacted terribly by the new building. The new building is lower, it's smaller scale, it's situated downhill. So when you view it from the main road, you really don't even notice the addition. 
What's nice is we now refer to these buildings as north side and south side. It's one building, not the old building and the new building. And then the interior, although it has its own personalities with the historic area versus the new build, I do think it's really quite seamless with regard to the look and feel and the flow. I know that was one of the biggest challenges we had was to create an interior that felt like one space. The original building, for the listeners here, was of a donut shape. How do you add... Square donut. Yeah, square donut. How do you add onto that and make it feel like one building? It was quite the challenge, but we found some opportunities in it to create that main street, that one unifying element that provides a consistent experience that helps with wayfinding, But when you stand in that building and you look down that main street, which is extremely long, but you get a sense that you're in one big facility that's unified. You can stand on the northern wall and look all the way down to south side. I must say that the idea of main street, which is one main circulation route that's public, it's in the same position stacked vertically on every floor. That to me was one of the best moves because People were tired of walking in a square all day. You walk through every department to get to where you were going. And now we've separated that. We've got public circulation, and then you know that leads you to your destination. And it really cuts down on the amount of traffic through the workplaces themselves. Perfect. So we did start this project. There were a lot of engagements. Leadership was involved. But then eventually we developed success criteria from years ago. And I wanted to talk about those since I have them in front of me. You know, they were flexibility, a magnet. It was about attracting, bringing people in. There was delight, which was about exciting employees, which was a specific word that actually came from one of the leaders. He's like, I want people to be delighted when they come to work. We talked about culture and we were very careful to say it was about growing the culture, not changing the culture, the brand, because you are a collection of brands and then connection about bringing people together. So of those six, flexibility, magnet, delight, culture, brand, connection, here it is five, six years later, are they still relevant now that the project is done and how is it doing? It wasn't just sort of this list we made at the beginning and then we dusted it off at the end and said, yep, that all worked really well. We actually used it as a tool throughout where we checked major decisions against the success criteria. When we had a lot of choices and options, we would say, okay, they all work, but which one is most flexible? Which one is going to drive connection? Which one is going to delight the most because of bringing in more daylight or allowing for something in the plan that employees would find valuable? So it became a tool from major building decisions to furniture to colors to all kinds of things i kept going back to this list and saying yeah this meets some or all of the criteria and i feel good about the decision there's a million things you can choose in a building a million ways to do it but the criteria became a really good tool for confidence in the decisions yeah don did you want to add to that yeah i know that scott moore who's leading your team there toward the CEO through recently, I think the last few months. Although he was very uh, brief in his comments, the question was asked, these were the success criteria, how do you think we did? And he just said, you've nailed it. It was in reference to, you, you can walk through the building and you can see all these things physically in the environment and you can imagine 
how those things will be. And I know you guys aren't totally occupied right now, but we can see all the possibilities. Yeah, flexibility obviously was key and it has helped us throughout the current situation with the pandemic. I mean, we obviously haven't brought very many people back at all, but I do feel good going forward that we've got the ability to adjust as needed, whether it's pandemic driven or changes in the business. That one is blatantly obvious every day. You know, I remember with the success criteria, we made a deliberate decision at the beginning that once we had those, we showed them in every meeting, kind of yeah. like, remember this. And you said that that helped build confidence in decisions, which feels really good. Did you ever have a point where there's maybe some contention on what to do? And then you're like, well, wait, which one of these satisfies the success criteria? You know, one of the big decisions was building that big bridge between the parking garage and the mm. building. And we talked about, do we really want to bring people down this valley into the hill and into the bottom of the building where you just step into the amenities? Does that send the right message? Yeah, that's is true. That, is that the right thing to do? And I said, no, we should build this bridge, have them enter the same level as the historic entrance and bring them into our environment that demonstrates the level of professionalism that the organization represents rather than enter into an amenity, into a food service or something like that. Yeah, it ended up being this axis that you have a great long view and the element that jumps out at your eye is the mosaic logo, which is translucent and at certain times of the day catches the sun. So it's visible from a long way and, and you kind of begin that brand and that moment and building pride along this very elegant walk into the new lobby. I wanted to talk about brand for a second because you are a collection of brands. And so I remember early in the space, you would walk through and you would see the individual brands expressed some more than others. So how did you approach that from a brand experience as a company of brands? Well, brand emerged in some of the conversations with employees where they said, why can't we show off what we do? Our place looks like we work for an insurance company. Hearing those words and seeing the nodding of heads, we knew that we could charge forward and really bring our brands to life. And our CEO said the same thing. He said, bring our brands to life. So we had to think about how do we do that? We didn't want to show any favoritism. But we sort of have a breakdown. We've got our corporate brand you know, with Altria and our logo. And then we've got our operating companies. And then within those, there are the consumer products that those companies produce. There's a wide variety of looks and feels and styles and colors. And so it was kind of a rich palette to choose from. The building itself embodies, I think, the Altria brands. You've got accent walls in offices that, that are sequenced very strategically so that when you look from a distance, you start to realize the mosaic colors are being shown. Each floor kind of has its own palette, which is, is different from before. We came from a land of consistency and standards and everything looked the same. That's good for some things, but clearly our employees were ready for a change. Yeah. And then when you get into the products and the operating companies, some things are very subtle. You know, sometimes it's materials that are rustic or slick and modern, and, and we evoke the feel of the brand when you step in the room. There are more obvious moves with logos and things like that, but I think what makes it so good is that there are little nods to brand, and then there are big obvious ways and everything in between, and that makes it rich. 
that brings a very eclectic experience to the associates. One of the things that I can't remember on who on your team was describing, it might've been Paige actually, who said, you know, it's very interesting that if I'm traveling in the building and I enter the building and I'm going to law or finance, that that experience is different than if you're going to one of your operating companies. And I found that really interesting because it crafted all these different experiences for the people that use the building. Mm -hmm. The different elements of brand become landmarks, which helps with wayfinding, which helps with that sort of unique path of travel each time you go somewhere new. One conscious thing that we did was we have an extensive art collection But before, the art dominated and brand was very, very much pushed back. And this time, we were much more strategic in that we said brand will be foremost and on the most publicly traveled pathways. And on the secondary and tertiary ones, we're going to now bring the sort of gallery experience out. You do travel from areas of saturated brand moments into sort of a gallery walk. And I think employees are really going to like that. It's a nice mix. And it's organized. Which is important. I think when most people think of expressing brand, it gets slathered like a NASCAR car where it's just everywhere and very prevalent. And the fact that you went for subtle and for experiential, like that was a fascinating choice. I think what you're leading to too, one of the other success criteria was about connection, getting people to connect. There's another experience I want to bring up in a second, but this one specifically, how did you express connection through the space to like nudge people to bump into each other because before, you know, it was the donut plus you were in multiple buildings. Those chances for people to have serendipitous connection just weren't there. What were some of the moves that are made to get those nudges? We previously had multiple doors in and out of spaces, lots of ways to take a shortcut. And we came up with the idea of the floor commons early in the planning. And the thought was, This is a space that's your point of arrival on every floor. They can be different architecturally from north side to south side as the building sort of shapes the spaces, but the function is the same. You arrive and you step out into the floor commons. And our idea was, it's a bit like college. You might have TV down there. Maybe you watch a soap opera with the same people, but you don't have classes with them. So the idea is that a whole floor or multiple areas would all have the opportunity to collide pre-COVID and see each other and sort of have that coffee pot conversation. And they may not work together at all, but maybe they get to know each other a little bit, share some experiences and build trust just through that everyday repeated experience. And so I think that's something that obviously we'll see in action when we can bring more people here. But just from the normal traffic flow that we're seeing now, it's where you see people throw a hand up and wave to each other and, hey, how you doing? So I have great faith that that's actually going to do the cultural things we hoped that space would do. I found one other thing interesting in that, which was the big decision when we were talking about connection. And we specifically had this conversation about connection to leadership within the organization. Oh, yeah. That was a biggie. Yeah. We kind of threw the question out there. There was this executive suite referred to as executive row. It was a very protected area for many of the executives. And we threw the question out, do you tear that down? Can you tell us a little bit about what went on behind the scenes there? Mm -hmm. Because 
it was kind of thrown out there and it was a big idea. And I know there was a lot of discussion around it, but we weren't directly involved in that. Yeah, Don, yeah. I wanted to know that too, because what I wanted to share was, Julia, when we were doing that focus group, or many focus groups, one of the things that stuck with me is somebody sharing the experience of getting out of that elevator and walking, feeling like I'm not supposed to be here. And then somebody immediately was like, can I help you? And that just compounded the experience of I don't belong in yeah. this area. And that's where the executives were. So that area was largely unchanged from the era of when the building was built. In the late 50s, the executives of Reynolds Metals, who the building was built for, would arrive, probably chauffeur-driven, park in their private garage, come up their private elevator to their executive floor. The whole building was designed so they didn't have to interact with the employees. Decades later, we have a much more modern executive team who were saying all the right things. My door is always open. My phone numbers are all published. Call me. Pop in. But the building and the behavior and the culture around that didn't feel quite as open door policy. There was a different carpet in executive row. It was squashier. And so when you set foot on it, it felt different underfoot. And you just kind of went, uh-oh. The elevator that served that level was not heavily used and occasionally, myself included, you pressed the wrong floor and you stepped out into this white carpet, you backpedaled, oh my gosh, I'm on the row. So our executives knew a little bit that they were in kind of a gilded cage. It was a holdover and quite honestly, they were all ready to move on from that. They were all very supportive of dispersing. And then we had a lot of conversations about, well, how do you do it? So it was decided that leaders would sit with their teams. Chief counsel sits with law. The CFO at the time was going to be near finance. So everybody was put out and about with their teams. And, and that was the plan for quite a while until the CEO was like, where'd everybody go? <laughs> I'm part of a team as well. So we did backpedal in the end and we put CEO and CFO side by side but it's open. You can walk right in. It doesn't feel any different. It doesn't look any different. So it is a huge change from what employees were used to before. And I think it speaks volumes to how leadership is walking the walk. Yeah, they placed the CEO and CFO right off that main street, right off that main circulation. So as they enter the building, they're in the main circulation with everyone else. So that hello or how's it going can happen with top leaders of your organization as well. I, th I commend them for being courageous in doing yes. that. Yeah, I remember when we first toured your space, there were a lot of these three-sided cardboard things that said innovate on it. And I know that innovation was a big driver. We want people to innovate more, try new things. But then part of the culture was you had to make this deck and then you had to have your manager approve it. And then they had their boss approve it. And I remember you challenged us don't bring a deck. Yeah. Like there was a, a shift in that behavior that we were trying to create yep. through the, the engagement. That's right. A lot of employees spoke of their frustration on multiple levels of review and that how can you be fresh and innovative if your idea is so reviewed and boiled down that there's not much left of it by the time it gets to a decision maker. We were sort of empowered by what we heard. It was already the culture of the facilities team. We're not the most buttoned up crowd, I suppose. We're not big on PowerPoint unless it's the best way to convey the information. We tended to try and start the behavior shift as 
part of the project. For example, we made up a rule. Why do meetings have to start on the hour or the half hour? There's a lot of other minutes. So we started booking meetings at, say, 9.09. And people would call us and say, um, I got an invite to come to this meeting, but, but it starts at 9.09. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. But the point is, why does the entire organization feel that they can't start a meeting that isn't <laughs> on 12 or, or 6? We also didn't do a lot of formal presentations. We did a lot of stand up and talk about and know your material and have a couple of exhibits to support it. And it was well received. It started at the beginning of the shift, I suppose. We're hopeful that other groups will become a little more relaxed as they get back in the building. You know, it was interesting too. Your team was willing to experiment on themselves a little bit yeah. in the way you configured your space prior to this. You had the smaller offices and then you were like, no, look, we can get four people in here and yeah. in the way the furniture was configured. And you were playing with the branding, with the colors behind each wall. And it was just a really fascinating sandbox, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, it was. We, we built out a pilot project area because it was too big a shift and too much money to do it blindly. So we thought, well, we'll build a few out and see how bad or how good it is. Because you know, we were talking about, oh gosh, was it about a 50% reduction in office sized on? Something 40 or 50%, I think. And the configuration changed from a long rectangle to, to a square 10 by 10. We also felt that big offices kept people in them all day and cut down on getting out because I need to meet with five people, therefore I need to go to another space. People were very territorial. They had their hidden coffee pot and their hidden microwave and the toaster oven that was a fire hazard. So you had mini break rooms squirreled away in corners and so those people never left their area. You had the person with the big office and all the meetings happened in there, so they never left their area. And we thought this is part of the problem. People think it's efficient, well, it takes me five minutes to get to the coffee pot over here, so it's faster here and I can work better. Well, that's great, but you trust six people, and we need you to trust 180. So how <laughs> can we get you to know 180 or 500 or whatever? So that was, you know, the other part with the floor commons is that's where the coffee is, and there's one great big coffee station per floor per side, and we're really hopeful that people don't try and sneak back in those hidden Keurigs that they have in their pedestal because we truly believe from a cultural standpoint that those few minutes getting that coffee and that walk up and down, it's good for your body, it's good for your mind, it's good for your connections to your coworkers, it's good for the business. It just isn't necessarily obvious. I remember also in the beginning of this, we did a study of your conference spaces we actually installed sensors in there and got to understand a little bit about the meeting behaviors because there were lots of conference rooms. There were some that were really opulent, right? I remember yep. one of the groups had a really opulent conference room and others were just kind of, as you put it, squirreled away into their space or they just kind of made it of it. And we learned a lot from that. The day that we were discussing VE, the project, <laughs> I remember that too where we said, hey, could we cut a bay off the building to reduce cost? And we went back and looked at that and said, well, yeah, if we use our conference spacing differently, there's a lot of space savings there and we're still giving them more conference space in the right place. 
and that was a big decision point too because that was the huge savings for the project for the company yeah well before people used to fight to the death over booking a conference room it felt like there weren't enough and they were always booked because somebody said well i'm going to book it as a recurring meeting and then they wouldn't have a meeting on that day but the room showed booked no one will knock on a door and open it to see if there's anyone in there in case they interrupt something important or confidential so rooms would sit empty and and we learned i think that there was an issue of both oversized rooms with only a handful of people in them and rooms showing booked when no one was using them so we knew we had to address those two things we also felt that just by giving each function their own dedicated room would get at an awful lot of the issue we tried to size the rooms based on sort of their average meeting size so some groups might have a room for 16 and some groups might have a room for 8 that was intentional to sort of be not waste space but to right size those and then you will schedule rooms for those meetings outside your norm or your quarterly meetings when you bring 40 people in we're not going to give you an everyday room for 40 we're going to ask you to schedule those in the conference center or something so This is a really big change for us to have dedicated rooms as well as public rooms and again Main Street with that public thoroughfare lent itself really nicely to organize the all the public rooms are off the public circulation and the sort of assigned to a function rooms are back within the workspaces more that was function that was behavior change as well as efficient planning all coming together Do you think any of that would change based on what you've learned through the pandemic? It remains to be seen how people will work in a few months. We do have a pretty good percentage of employees who have expressed an interest in a hybrid work fashion going forwards, meaning that they're willing to give up an assigned office or workstation in exchange for a flexible approach. So they might only come in a couple of days a week with their primary office at home. So I would ask myself what's bringing them in? It's probably meetings, it's probably collaboration with their teams, it's probably receiving one-on-one feedback from their mentor or their manager. I'm coming in for heads down intensive work. I don't know how much of that is going to be the case. So I think the meeting room will be an important tool. I think collaboration spaces which thank goodness with our flexible layout, we've got collaboration areas interspersed amongst workstations. As far as I can tell, I think it's going to work well. We might have more events or more large group get-togethers if a team is predominantly dispersed and they want to get everyone together instead of quarterly maybe it's monthly I don't know yet but I do think that that might be a difference than when we programmed the building Julia thanks for that I want to know though now that the building's done when you do have a return to office as people start to come back in whatever capacity are there things that you're curious about or excited to see how do you hope people experience this space Oh yeah, definitely. We built a monumental stair on the south side that connects all the floor commons and 
it's a really dynamic shape. It's offset and you can stand on the second floor and you can see all the way down to the terrace level. And I've said the entire time during construction, I cannot wait to see activity on each level and see people using this as sort of a meet me at space and then going on to lunch or wherever. But to see movement and the energy that people bring, and especially when you can see multiple levels of people, I really think that's going to be a space that feels great. It's full of daylight. It's got plants in it. You know, it's got all kinds of different sort of furniture and tools. It's where the coffee is. I'm also looking forward to people experiencing dining. It's all themed. Each station has got a unique look and feel and name. It's not your average cafeteria. Really looking forward to, to seeing it full of people enjoying lunch. Perfect. I love that. What about you, Don? Is there something you're hoping people experience when they do come back to the new building for Altria? I was really excited to, or I am really excited to see how people react to that whole connection to the brand. Before, it was really about the history of the building and that art experience that was laid out. When I think about what was there before and what's there today, that is a huge change visually in the space. Yep. And really to see people's faces light up and realize what has been done here. I know there's been a few reactions for people that have come in. What have you seen from people that have experienced it from other sites and have come to the site? Extreme excitement. There have been a couple of moments that I was hoping would happen, which is someone walks by one of the more subtle things and doesn't know what it is, and someone else tells them, oh, don't you know that that's you know, from this place, this part of the process? And then they go, oh, I always wondered what that was. So there have been a few of those light bulb moments, which I hope spreads from employee to employee, and people learn something about their company in an unexpected way. But overwhelmingly, they like the energy in the building because it's sunny and it's got color and it's, it's a lot of variety. And that's very, it's a, it's a delight. And that was one of the success criteria. But that's another right. one was magnet. And I remember through the process asking the question, would you bring a new hire through the space they'd be working in? And the answer was, oh, no, oh, no, 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 we no show them that. <laughs> but do you think now if you brought a potential new hire through, would they get excited and want to work there? I would tell people now, you better block out two hours for that interview if you're going to tour them through the building because you're going to want to go on basically every floor. This was a five, what, six-year journey. Is there anything you would do differently? Like, what would you change if you could about the process? Were there any big ahas or learning moments? You know, each project kind of has its own path. You find your own way and it, you have unexpected turns. And we did our fair share of presenting those to the design team. We refer to those as dropping bombs, but we who get wants a, lot a straightforward yeah. program that never changes, right? I think the process went really well and outside of the pandemic, you know, I wish your whole team could see the building. I wish you guys could all come here and see it. I think we'd be proud. So what else, Don, any final thoughts from you about the project in general? 
I mean, it's really kind of a sad state that we build a building and we finish it or almost finish it, right? We've got a couple things that we're trying to wrap up and it's not occupied. It's a little dissatisfying, <laughs> to yeah. be frank. I've made frequent visits up there. I love working up there and just plotting down and I go up there for a day. I might only have a few hours worth of work to do in Richmond, but it's just a really great place to work. And I feel inspired by the space in general. I'm really hoping that all the occupants of that space feel inspired. And the industry that Altria is in is, is a tough one. It requires innovation and to think differently and in a time of uncertainty. I'm hoping that the space is a tool. And I'm hoping we can have another conversation a year from now where we can talk about all those things. Yeah, let's see how it all plays out, how when people come back, what unexpected twists it brings and what plays out very well that we've guessed at and assumed and planned for and got it right. Some will be right, some will be wrong. We'll have to wait and see which is which. Part of our process is to measure that success and share that. I know your team is really thinking about how can I measure that success that we had and can we apply that in other places within the business? Yep. Perfect. Julia, any last thoughts before we go? No, I just think you guys did a really nice job planning out this process. I still think that was what set us on the path to success was just having that roadmap in the beginning, knowing we had buy-in, knowing we had employee involvement, engagement. That really set us in the right direction. And thank you guys. Plus, you know, you're not exactly boring people to work with. <laughs> That's true. We're quite the uh, motley crew, I would say. <laughs> Julia, it's an absolute joy to be talking to you again. Don Hart, yep. it's always a pleasure. Thank you for joining Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP for this episode, Strategic Roadmaps, Designing Your Organization's Success, with Julia Bradley, Senior Manager, Corporate Facilities, Workplace Strategy, and Space Planning at Altria, and Don Honert, Workplace Client Leader at BHDP. If you appreciate what you've heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review. I'm Brian Trainer, your host, and I hope you'll join us for another episode of Trends and Tensions to see what topics drive design.